More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Mental health and addiction in the family business, the silent threat. The saying goes, success breeds success, but what else can it bring? According to Jan Gerber, chairman of Paracelsus Recovery in Zurich, our infatuation with success can be problematic. Often, it means we overlook the other aspects of life in a thriving family business. The long hours, pressure and complex relationships can cause stress, compromise mental health, and lead to addiction. Frequently, these issues go untreated because of the stigma associated with them. Paracelsus Recovery addresses this void by focusing on mental health and addiction in the family business. Founded in 2012 as part of the Swiss Clinics Group, itself a family business, Paracelsus Recovery is one of the world's most exclusive rehabilitation programs, offering solutions to those who have nowhere else to turn. A preventive approach, according to Young Geber, is the most effective way for family business members to look after each other's mental health, so awareness and communication are critical. When it comes to addiction, family business members must be cognizant of and proactive with regards to each other's mental health before it's too late. We spoke to Jan about mental health, addiction, and communication in the family business. Enjoy this episode with Jan. We are going to be talking about quite a complicated topic or like a complex topic or a difficult topic to talk about, I would say, because it was a taboo for quite a long time, I guess, to talk about things such as addiction, mental health, uh, especially, I think, within the context of a family business where we are all very, very keen on maintaining reputation to the outside world intact, as we all know. You are in a very, very special position, I think, to to give us the kind of information and the kind of insight that we're looking for here on when it comes to these subjects, because you yourself are part of a family business and uh, part of the services that you provide as a family business is naturally to support families in facing addiction and mental illness within their family circle. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Paracelsus Clinic and what it is that you're doing? Yes, my pleasure. So Paracelsus Recovery, it's the first uh, clinic that uh, my family established. By now, on the Swiss Clinics Group, we have uh, quite a few different clinics, uh, also in different fields. But uh, it's the one closest to my heart and definitely the most interesting, where we treat primarily addictions and associated uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always have to be an addiction at the core, or it doesn't always have to be an addiction either. It's basically generally, call it general psychiatry, mental health, in the context or realm of wealth, of family business, and of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Because uh, those fears, in some way, are related to each other, and they come with a, with a set of unique challenges. There's a lot of discussion around like the fact that we talk more about mental health gives the feeling that the occurrence is more frequent, that we have more people with mental health issues than we've had before. Now, this could, of course, be a total statistical bias because for the first time it is actually examined statistically Mm -hmm. how many people mention that they are facing these challenges. But in your view, is there any reason for you to think that our current lifestyle as a society is more or less conducive 
towards mental health issues than, say, a generation before us? I think it's both factors. So we mm -hmm. talk about it more, so we think it happens more. But um, there's definitely developments that do have an adverse impact on the average person's uh, mental well-being. The perception that life becomes more faster paced, work and life uh, becomes a, a blur. Uh, there's mm -hmm. no clear clear borders. We're not you know, packing our briefcase at uh, 5 or 6 p.m. or 10 p.m. for that matter and go home and are then uh, at home and our mind is also at home. Uh, we're very connected these days. That also means that it's hard to switch off mm -hmm. and hard to concentrate on our needs as human beings and to connect with others. And there's a lot of jobs out there uh, where you just don't switch off anymore. Mm -hmm. And even if the company doesn't expect it, you feel compelled to, to check your emails before you go to bed. It's the first thing you do in the morning when you wake up. A lot of people live this way, not realizing the profound impact that has on their well-being. And uh, connecting with others is, is very important. As human beings, we have a need, a profound need of connecting with others. Mm -hmm. Now, the new technologies can, in theory, support that. But the type of that communication also changes. Mm -hmm. It becomes shorter lived. It becomes less committal. Mm -hmm. So it can also disconnect people. So I think technology and the way technology has influenced uh, the way we live, it has a lot of potential, but it's often not used the right way. Mm -hmm. And especially with younger uh, people basically growing up with, uh, you know, the newest forms of uh, social media. Uh, we see whole new new phenomenons of uh, anxiety disorders. You know, the fear of missing out, FMO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's in the big book of psychiatry yet as a diagnostic, but it's something that's definitely, you know, reality for a lot of people. You know, this uh, social media, online challenges and all of that. These are all stress factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and stress is a number one factor that basically induces anxiety and is basically one of the key ingredients into mental health and addiction problems. I think also part of our conversation with you today, we would love to explore with you if you could explain to us the actual difference or the actual connection between when we're talking about addiction and when we're talking about a mental health problem, for instance. I think this is this is something that maybe gets confused or it gets merged into one. So can you educate us on, on this subject? Yeah, that would be... <laughs> A few hours uh, <laughs> elaboration, uh, if you want to really break it down. I think the most and foremost thing to understand about addiction, addiction is not a phenomenon in its own right. Mm -hmm. Addiction is always a symptom. It's a symptom of underlying issues. And these underlying issues are often not straightforward either. Mm -hmm. They are often uh, several factors that cross-influence each other. And uh, I try to give you a few examples. Addiction is often a result or a symptom of somebody self-medicating. Mm. Pain, pain or an inner emptiness or an inner hole. Um, this pain often comes from a trauma. Uh, mm. A trauma can be a physical trauma. It can be way back. It can be childhood abuse. It can be childhood neglect. It can be a, a horrific accident. It can be losing someone dear to one. It can be losing a, you know, a job or public humiliation. It can be mm. a lot of things. When we are traumatized, we have different ways to deal with that. And, uh, and uh, trauma needs to be processed. We need to come to terms with it. We need to grieve. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we are in shock, uh, that often the process doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so trauma can really ingrain itself into our conscious and subconscious and also into our body. That's proven these days that trauma can manifest itself physically. Mm -hmm. That leads to anxiety and to pain that, 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 that keeps you know, swelling up and pushing from the inside. Mm -hmm. 
And then when we, you know, drink a few glasses or take a, a sleeping pill or anti-anxiety medication or illicit drugs, we feel that these negative feelings are not there. I actually feel good. And all we want is to feel good or happy. So for people who do suffer, who have a pain, physical or emotional or an emptiness uh, inside, um, they realize that the consuming something that makes just feelings numb gives them a, a bit of a relief. But mm. when that relief wears off, the pain comes back mm -hmm. and it comes back often even harder because mm -hmm. you've just felt good. You've just felt good and you haven't felt good in a long time. And you crave that feeling of uh, feeling good again. Mm -hmm. And that's where addiction starts. It would be interesting to hear from you, like, you know, whether you think that um, within the family business context, whether there are certain things that we should be paying particular attention to in connection with mental health. Having a family business as a family doesn't doesn't mean that a specific family member or the family as a whole will suffer from, you know, mental health issues or addiction. But it brings an additional layer of challenges and complexity. A small family business, in my view, does not necessarily entail specific risk factors, but uh, there's definitely correlation and it's probably a curve where when a family business uh, is bigger, it also correlates more with risk factors. It doesn't mean they always manifest themselves in actual mental health problems, but it's definitely a lot more risk factors as a family business is bigger or becomes bigger, uh, more successful. And then it probably levels off at some point where it's just so big that it becomes corporate uh, mm -hmm. in a way where governance structures are professionalized to a degree where it shields the family from the dynamics that the family business brings into the family. Mm -hmm. When you have uh, a family that also runs a business and several family members are involved in that business, it creates a, a massive additional layer of complexity mm -hmm. because you have to make sometimes hard business decisions. Often you have different points of views, what's the right, right thing to do. You often have sibling rivalry when a family business is handed to the next uh, generation. And those are, if it's a pure corporate environment, if a pure professional business has to make that decision, then you have different board members and, and, and members of management who sit down and they make their arguments. And sometimes these discussions can get heated, but at the end of the day, everybody goes home and they live their family life. When you govern a family business, uh, you take home those emotions. Yeah that drive your business. And then when there's large stakes, these uh, discussions can get very, very, very personal and can really uh, have an impact on family harmony or family dynamics. So that's already tricky. What you also often see is when you have a successful family business, especially first, second generation, uh, you have people who are very successful in what they do, mm. but often they also come with problematic personality traits. It can be narcissism. It can be moodiness. Often a patriarch or also matriarch come with personality traits that are uh, per se not easy to deal with. That's often part of the success. So when you have that in the picture as well, and then if that person is a decision maker, then you have again an additional layer of, uh, of complexity because then you don't have a rational yeah. discourse anymore but it can get highly emotional, it can get manipulative, it can get really, yeah. really uh, toxic to a degree where, and when we see that there's a book um, uh, called Family Wars, uh, you yeah. probably have come across it. I've, I've just recently read it again. The book itself, at the time when it was written, everything, it was you know to the point, good example, very interesting to read, but in my view, it should be rewritten from a mental health perspective because yeah, okay. there's so many yeah. mentions or hints at sometimes explicitly mentioned 
that the, uh, that the conflicts of the families is rooted in the personality and brackets personality disorder of certain family members. And it's argued that more often than not, that's actually uh, one of the root reasons when a, when a family really, a business family, you know, gets into major conflict. It's often um, a mental health issue at the core of it. Well, and that is a difficulty, isn't it? Because the, the moment it's not just a personality mismatch or it's not just like a communication breakdown, but you're actually dealing with someone at the other end of the conflict that has an illness. So a mental health problem is something to be taken very seriously and something to be taken as seriously as any other physical ailment, of course, mm. which is something we're coming to understand today and haven't understood for a very long time. I think a lot of family businesses or family business owners who will read this or will listen to this will feel they recognize situations in their own businesses. They recognize situations that they've experienced or they recognize themselves in this. What is your primary advice when we suspect mental illness in another family member in the family business? Like, do you have a standard operating procedure that you propose to other family members that seem to feel that they detect this in a family member? Is there an approach that is constructive? Is there an approach that you think is more successful than others? There's no one size fits all. Um, and uh, well, I've two main uh, recommendations that I normally make when I talk to, you know, fellow entrepreneurs or family business members. And one that doesn't directly answer your question, but that's, that's I think, the most important message is be prepared. Yeah. Because when you have a family business, when that family business has, uh, you know, a certain size, there comes the family office into play. If you are aware that mental health slash addiction as a, as a consequence of it, you are at higher risk yourself and, mm -hmm. and uh, as a family, so each family member, than if you were just a member of the of the average you know non-family business uh, population, yeah. be aware that this is more likely to happen to you, mm. and the factor is about four to five times more likely. Yeah, be aware of that. Take it seriously. Have uh, respect from it, and be prepared. So, with a certain size of family business, when there's family offices, it makes sense to get uh, outside advice. Mm. as a prevention measure mm. you know make sure measures are in place awareness is in place uh, that if such a risk factor manifests itself it's detected early mm. and there's a clear protocol in place how do we deal with that and the protocol mm. can be we get an external you know coach therapist uh, interventionist or mediator rather early than later mm -hmm. And if that's standard protocol and everybody knows about it, uh, it's less problematic to say, okay, we need to get a mediator or, or a therapist sure. um, uh, to, to help us deal with the situation. If that's never been talked about, it's, again, a taboo topic. And when you mm -hmm. say we should get a therapist in, then other family members can feel that this is an accusation that they're yeah. off the rockers <laughs> or it's a try to project uh, problems onto them. Uh, we're not fans of confrontative interventions. They often can be traumatizing. But it's not wrong to talk to an interventionist or to talk also to a treatment provider like like us just for advice about the specific situation. How shall we deal with that? Mm -hmm. What can mm -hmm. we do? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But that's what often family members forget. Addiction is a family disease. Mm -hmm. And everybody plays a role in the dynamic. Yeah. There's never just one black sheep who acts out and who is the bad person and who needs help and they go to a rehab and they're fixed and they mm -hmm. come back and everything is fine. Never happens. <laughs> so everybody who um, 
who thinks or sees that they have an addiction or mental health problem in the family need to be at least open to hearing and learning what their role is that has led to that point and also what their role should be to heal the family. The reintegration of someone who has dealt with mental health uh, problems and has overcome them or has learned how to deal with them or has found the right medication you know, there's a stigma, of course, still attached to it, even in the West, I would say. So if, if someone has been to your clinic, if someone has been, there is a reintegration process that needs to happen. What kind of advice do you give your patients when they leave on how to deal with, you know, what they probably perceive as the judgment waiting for them in the outside world, and particularly within their family family and family business context? Like, what is your approach there? Our approach, and uh, I think it's the really the only right one is you can never deal with a person of concern in isolation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They're going back to their home environment. They're going back to their family. Often the family is part of that dynamic. Normally it is uh, in whichever level, at least at the very least have been affected by it in, in, in a profound way, but often they're part of that, that cycle. So it never makes sense to take somebody out of their environment, put them to rehab, treat them, no matter how good the treatment program is. And then just, you know, send them back and they go back from that isolated, caring, therapeutic environment into their home environment that normally doesn't just work like that. So two factors. One, it makes sense to involve the family to some degree mm-hmm. throughout the course of the treatment. Yeah, There are organizations that are ideally separate from the rehab that work with the family at the same time while the person of concern is in, in, is in rehab. Yeah, And the rehab and that organization uh, or individual therapist who works with the family ideally connect on the way. Mm-hmm. And at some point, there should be family uh, therapy sessions as well, yeah. where mm-hmm. be it couple sessions, be it uh, parents and children, be it siblings, just close family members um, who have taken harm and pain from, from this dynamic, um, that this is addressed therapeutically. Mm-hmm. So aftercare, uh, continuing care is just as important as to stay at the rehab. That can be a therapist who stays with the family for some time. If the family can afford that, uh, it makes most sense that uh, that person actually is there yeah. for a few weeks, a few months, uh, sometimes longer, and be there only for the person who was in rehab and the family and help them with that reintegration effort. Mm. Another, in my view, important thing is to understand, particularly when it comes to business families, mm. when there is wealth involved and Family businesses often, if it's not a, a local corner store, which is the typical family business, if it's something potentially bigger, it will eventually get bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, businesses grow. And uh, from a certain size of family business and families, you often see, okay, so there are family members who have an important role in the business. Mm-hmm. And then you have others who, who don't, mm-hmm. but they still benefit from, from the family business and the mm-hmm. revenues it, uh, it generates. And that can often lead to toxic dynamic in the first place. Yeah. Because when you're a family member, um, let's say your parents, first generation, have, have, have you know built up something quite significant. And then you yourself are not going to be in a meaningful role within that family business mm-hmm. or no role at all. Mm-hmm. You can, it's easy to get the feeling that you will never be able to feel the footsteps of your parents. Yeah. That can be a big self-esteem uh, implication. And also a sense of purpose. Yeah. When you build something, when you're an entrepreneur, that's your purpose uh, or, or one of the key purposes uh, of why you get up every morning. And uh, when you're just a beneficiary of a trust or a family business or a family office, then uh, it's often two combinations, a lack of purpose together with, you know, with income 
mm. that uh, that deep down most people feel is undeserved. Yeah. Um, at the same time, if you have quite a bit of money at your disposal and you have this lack of purpose and emptiness and not feeling deserved, uh, often leads to then acting out with that money. Yes. So buy yes. nice cars, nice holidays, mm. uh, yachts, whatever it might be. And that is actually part of the addictive cycle, self-medicating that lack of purpose. Yeah. So to get back to your question is when somebody is uh, suffering, when an individual is suffering from mental health issues and, uh, and you know, addictions as symptoms of that, you always have to look also at so what's the person's purpose in life? Yeah. What's the reason for them to get uh, out of bed in the morning? Um, and when they go back home, if they didn't have a purpose or not a clear purpose, help, help them to define a purpose. That can be within the family mm, business. Mm. Sometimes the family is resistant to that because the person has just been to rehab. You know, he's the unreliable person. Uh, why? Why should he or she get a you know now now role in the family business? But yeah. that's something that that then can be negotiated. Yeah, it can also be just you know building up a charitable work. Uh, you know, in parallel, what does the family do on that side? Um, or something completely different. We've had clients who go back and that uh, we have, well one client uh, um, who trained as a, as a therapeutic masseuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, very wealthy family family business but just never really had a, an interest or a calling to work in the family business lots of expectations uh, and disappointments from the from the parents led to mental health issues <laughs> and uh you have to work together with family acceptance on the family side that this person you know has a different calling or a different sure. purpose uh, and then make sure or, or try to do the best with the family that they support that individual path of the family mm-hmm. member um, so that's an important part of reintegration is also acceptance what they need and uh, that they need a purpose. Um, that's, a, that's a very important part. And another part is really family communication and family mm-hmm. dynamics. How do you deal with that? It's because communications, when it breaks down, it's always similar patterns. Uh, it can be, you know, one married couple who always gets into the same routine of arguments because of the same reasons and in the same way. So learning about constructive communication mm. and each and everybody's role to contribute to yeah. constructive communication, that's very important too. And often the such families also benefit from a coach uh, initially yeah. until they, they learn and internalize new uh, constructive communication patterns, uh, which initially have sometimes even led to actually, you know, a person actually having to go to rehab in the end. Yeah. Um, and so that's all part of the healing process and reintegration. So, uh, Jan, lots of advice and also lots of reminders that there are tools and places and people available today to help us as a third party, um, uh, third party perspective on these very, very complex issues when they occur in the family business. Uh, thank you infinitely much for sharing your expertise with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.